And so I called the Los Angeles Small Business Administration and I said, well, who's teaching crowdfunding? And they said, what's crowdfunding? And I said, I'm teaching crowdfunding. What do you want me to come in? Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Hi, great to listeners. If you want to manage real estate, maybe you're ready for a lifestyle change. By selling your real estate, of course, you may have to pay substantial capital gain taxes. One option that may help you solve this is to learn about doing a 1031 tax-deferred real estate exchange because you may be able to defer all of the capital gain taxes and you could even exchange into a replacement property that may allow you to get rid of all of the headaches that are involved with being an active landlord. My friend Ray Druitt is a managing director with Bangerter Financial Services and his goal is to help you understand all of the rules associated with 1031 exchanges. To learn more, you may call him directly at 801-312-9482. Once again, it's 801 801- 312-9482, or you may visit his website at 1031.bangertofinancial.com slash 1031guy. Please be sure to see disclosures in the show notes. Welcome back, my Get to Wealth listeners. Today, I have a very special guest for you. I know we have talked about investment, we've talked about mindset, we've talked about health on this show before. But one thing we have actually never talked about is raising funding. And raising funds via crowdfunding, right? Where we're not saying, hey, Mr. or Miss Investor, give us that $20 million check or $2 million check or a $1 million check, whatever you're raising for. We're now talking to going to people, a retail investors where people are putting in $100, $500, $200, $2,000, depending upon what the size of the check is. But it's smaller checks, but a lot of checks, right? You may have heard of companies called like GoFundMe, and there are lots of, there's lots of the crowdfunding platforms that exist there. So this, with this, what I want you to understand is from this show, is really focus on what does it mean to raise for a great idea, right? Because what, what, you're, what you're betting on is that people are going to buy your idea. And you may not be in business, so don't shut it off. I'll tell you why. I'm, let me connect the dots for you. So don't shut off the podcast just because you're not in the business and you don't need funding. It's really about selling an idea, right? So when you're on the receiving end, when somebody is, when you're receiving somebody else's idea, it's easy to judge and say yes and no, but it's more important to be on the other side of the table where presenting ideas, right? It's communication. It's being able to deliver your vision in a way that it makes sense. You know, by the way, in this case, raise some capital by selling an idea. Right? So that's really what I want to talk about is what communication is about connecting, it's about using the words the right way. And that's where we'll go talk today to our special guest. Her name is Dr. Wright. She is CEO and founder for Right Place Studios. She's a woman of many hats. But the hat that we want to talk about today is going to be about crowdfunding. But before we go in deeper in there, Dr. Wright, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate being able to share and clear this up for everyone. No, thank you. And so, Dr. Wright, one thing we always ask our guests before we jump into anything about them, it's really turning it for me. When you hear the term migrate to wealth, what does it mean to you? I feel like it's a movement towards wealth and accessible accessibilities. For me, wealth doesn't always mean money. It means having access to something. And shall I talk about the elephant story? Or is that a good, that's a good example of. Yeah, it's a great example. The, the boat is a great example. There's tons of examples. Yeah. I know you've been, you and I have been catching up for the last 30 minutes and we almost yeah. got to hit record. <laughs> it seems like a pattern with me, Dr. Right? I, I end up talking more to my guests off-air, then I talk to them on it. But good. <laughs> well, it's wonderful to have a host who's actually interested in you as a guest. So that's really definitely. Great. But I just want to say that having access is is having wealth because you don't have to own a boat, but if you have access to a boat, you can do what you need to do. And I was telling him a story about I was asked to do a photo shoot for a t-shirt company that is a nonprofit. You buy the t-shirts and the money court goes towards saving elephants that are being hunted in Africa. The company's called Angry Elephant and get the t-shirts. And I, I was just daydreaming and saying, wow, wouldn't it be cool if we could do the, the shoot with real elephants? 
And I couldn't get that out of my mind. I made a couple of phone calls. It turns out a 30-minute drive from my home. It was a family that owns three elephants. And they own horses. They have a huge, you know, acres of land. And I called them out of the blue, left a message, said hi. I know I sound crazy, but this is what I'm trying to do. It is a real nonprofit, but I thought maybe we could do some of the shoots with the elephants. And they called me back two days later and said, yeah, sure, come out. They didn't charge me. We got this really great education about, uh, they actually had Asian elephants, but I told them nobody could tell the difference in the photo shoot. But they gave us a real education and just, turns out one of the elephants, Rosie, was in the Disney movie called Dumbo Drop. So she, she's been in the movie. She's an actress and what they do. And we just learned so much. And it was just such a, they're very smart. They're really comfortable. They really liked my hair. They would take their noses and pick their hair. They were like, what is this on your head? <laughs> they were like, what's going on right here? So, you know, I just let them do it. It was like, okay, I haven't quite seen hair like this before. And they were trying to figure out what the deal was. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but they were very gentle. They weren't, you know, it wasn't like a sloppy dog or anything like that. It was very gentle and it was a great experience. But it was having access to elephants. So I think of it as moving towards more access. And to me, the access is part of your wealth. And, and I love that what you said, Dr. Wright, is because I think Tony Robbins says, and I, I don't know if that, if he initiated that or not, or if he stole from someone, but we'll give the credit to the man right now. That's because that's where I heard it first was, it's not about your lack of resources or access to resources. It's about you being resourceful, right? And that's really what wealth is about. Because no one in this world will have, ever have enough money unless you're Jeff Bezos or the top 0.001% of the people. You'll never have enough money to, to have all the resources. <laughs> and I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm recovering from a cough. So I just coughed while I was on the mic. So I apologize to you and the listeners, hopefully you'll get over soon. But really, I think it's about that, right? That's really what wealth is about. It's not about money. It's not about the amount of your net worth you have, with you, whether it's 5 million or 5 billion. It's really access to, hey, you know what? I, I need a boat. I know somebody who has a boat. Or I, I can know somebody who has a boat. A lot of that is that. So you can enjoy it while not having to worry about maintaining it, right. which I love that. Dr. Wright, tell us your journey into wealth. How did you migrate into wealth? What did you <laughs> help us tell us that story? And I know it's a long story because it's a very rich story. We'll try and shorten it. So give us a good, quick snapshot. So, well, I will say, you know, I did have a little bit of a, a head start, maybe more of a head start than some others might have had. And so I come from a family that generation after generation was really into uh, land ownership. So I grew up in a house that my father owned. My father grew up in a house that his father owned and, you know, for generations back. And so it was drilled into us to own the house that you live in, you know. And my sister, my little sister, she got married, you know, quite late in life, started her family late in life. But you know, my mother, before my mother passed, you know, my my dad was gone already. But before my mother passed, she got to see that my sister had her home also, owned the home also. And so for my family, the, the basis of our wealth was real estate. And then I just had a dad who liked to share about this. He wasn't a super stock market person, but he was showing us, oh, this is what we're doing. And this is what, you know, you can be doing. And so I very early on had a big head start on what was possible because I could see people doing it. Yeah. My grandfather was a reporter. My mother's father was a reporter for Johnson Publications, which is the Ebony Magazine, Jet Magazine. And so I got exposed to people like Johnny Cochran when I was very young. You know, I saw a lot of stars, Sammy Davis Jr., and a lot of different things. And so I heard a lot of conversations about wealth and about planning, not about just the showbiz stuff, but the other things that they were doing, kind of being a little kid sitting in the corner, you know, at some big meeting, what I just thought I was at somebody's house, but it turned out to be, it was a big meeting for something special and just hearing a lot of terms. And so I will say I probably had more of a head start than other people. And then, you know, as an adult coming into learning, okay, I bought a 
house when I was, you know, very young. I bought my first house. And then, you know, just understanding some basic principles of mm-hmm. wealth building, of what I could do, what I could not do, and, you know, not couldn't do, but, you know, you have to plan for, okay, we can do this year, and we'll do this yeah. in five, and we'll do this. And so just understanding and planning. But I think just in the tradition of my family, and, you know, my daughter also, she lives in Philadelphia, she owns a house, so, nice. you know, it's just. You know, just a tradition of passing down the this here in America is real estate and land ownership. I I don't know if that's the basis in other countries. I do know a lot of wealthy people from Singapore. I have friends in Malaysia. I have friends all over the world. And so I think different countries, it's a little bit different. But I know here in America, this is one of the bases you can start with. Well, that's amazing. So, so Dr. Wright, when you were growing up and then that, I want to ask this question carefully because it's an important question. As in, were you understanding? Were, were you forced to sit in those rooms, or were, did you naturally just had an inclination? I want to be around my dad. How did you feel? And it's a very personal reason why I'm asking this question is because my daughters are eight and ten, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to hear it from somebody who actually was in that room. Of how did you? Because your dad may or may not have a reason to take you there because either it was because he, where else would they put you? because everyone else was busy, so just drive right. on. <laughs> Chances are that was a very strong reason for that. But as a child, when you were in these rooms, and how old were you when you were in these rooms, when it actually started to click? I just found it very interesting. And maybe because I was hearing it, maybe I was just like always in these rooms. But, you know, they would give me a book to read. Some of my old teachers laughing, they, they still know me, will say, always remember you with a book in your hand, you know, so... They would give me a book to read. I could read very early at the age of three. And they could give me, they would give me a book to read. And I would sit in the corner. But I would also be reading and hearing. And so um, I wasn't forced to be there. I liked hanging out with my parents. I have a great relationship with my dad and my mom. They're both gone now. But I liked hanging out with them. And my mother's, my, my father's father had passed long before I was born. But my mother's father was still alive. And so being around him and getting to meet, you know, all the people that, you know, he was having me meet. I think I was just a well-behaved kid and I could sit in the corner and be quiet. And, you know, it did rub off. You know, I was understanding from a very young age that these movie stars and these singing stars were not just wealthy from the records. Like I understood they were doing other things. And so I always grew up like, what's the other thing I'm going to do? Love that. So what was the other thing Um, What you started with? (laughs) <laughs> the other thing was real estate. When I opened my practice as a physician, my pastor introduced me to this man who came into the office and he broke down to me how I could buy the partial stocks. You could buy partial. So I didn't have a, you know, I just put all this money into my practice. I didn't have a lot of money left over, but I still have the stock I bought with him. You know, he's long moved from California, moved back to New York. And, but the lessons that he taught of how you can. Right. But partial stocks and you can do. And so I think I just was always just looking at other things. You know, we invested in other real estate. We did, we invested, we did a business investment. It didn't work out, but it didn't stop us from doing it. It just like it didn't work out. So I think that's the other thing too, is that sometimes people have a bad experience. Right. And then they're like, oh God, we can't do this anymore. We don't feel like that. Number one, we only invested what we could lose. Like, you know, before we write the check, in my house, we talk about if this $5,000 is gone, can we like still make the mortgage next month? Are we still going to eat? Like if this is me, like we can't eat, then we can't do it. And so it was not going to affect our day to day. And it turned out it didn't work out. The same investment my little brother had done and he had been making money for three years asking us to come in on this. And then wow. right when we came, it tanked. Of course. So isn't that isn't that how no, it doesn't what happens with life? <laughs> that's exactly what happens. Yeah. So that's the other thing is that you do have to be resilient. You do have to understand what your long-term plan is. And you do have to be okay when things don't work out. No, I don't want to throw away five thousand dollars. That wasn't my intention. But you know, it happens sometimes, you know. And so you got to be able to run with some people cannot take a punch like that. And so I yeah. will say, yeah. you know, do you can do 
and don't push yourself farther for anybody else. Just do what you could do. I completely agree. I think I think there's a there's a fine line between going outside of your comfort zone and being completely reckless. There's a there's a, there's a very fine line, and you have to eat, for each one of us has to figure out what that line is. It's different for different people. For some of them, a hundred thousand dollar loss could mean nothing. For some, five dollar loss could be devastating. So you have to really understand where your boundaries are and your own tolerance. And maybe you are able to financially come outside of a loss of $100,000, but not psychologically, right? So maybe you take these, hopefully you never have to lose $100,000. But if you do, maybe you take smaller bets where you lose $5,000, $2,000, $3,000, especially if you're able to withstand a $100,000 loss and nothing's going to change in your life and you want to take that step, right? So you build that muscle slowly, but don't go jump into from zero to $100,000 if you're not built that way, if you're not wired that way. Because what's going to happen is if that investment is not going to work, you're never going to invest again, period. Right? And that's not where the wealth is built. The wealth is built in when your money starts to work for you. Why is real estate such an important asset class in this country? It's because, and most of the fiat currency it's because everything is built on debt and real estate is built on debt because you mortgage, you take a mortgage, you take a loan, right? Something is happening where you're not really putting your money down. And as the debt and the U.S. government, it's, it's well known that we're printing our money hand over fist. So if the money is going to get printed, that means the money is going to, the value of the money is going to keep continuing down, which essentially means that your value of the property or your real estate is only going to keep, keep increasing. On a long-term basis, right? I'm not the one to say that real estate never goes down. I didn't say that. So for those of you who may have interpreted that that way, I'm saying that over a long horizon, real estate is going to continue to go down unless something drastically happens in our economy. U.S. is drastically and that And that's what it is. You know, everybody's going for a quick dollar. And, you know, it, it, it's not appealing for people to say, we're going to hold on to this for... 15 yeah. years and 15 years we're going to do people don't want to hear that but you know what that's what wealthy people are doing they're not in it for oh i'm going to flip homes i'm going to quick flip homes and i try to explain to people flipping homes at each stage if, you, if it's not correct you will lose your money so yeah. if you're buying it at the wrong price you're going to lose your money if you miscalculate how much it costs to fix it up you're going to right. lose your money right. if you can't Sell it in the right market, you're gonna lose your money. Like people don't get it. It's very sexy for those who know know how to do it. But I would prefer buying a, a you know shack and holding it for 15 years and slowly fixing it up and doing whatever I'm going to do than a quick flip to get some money because I know you know 15 years is going to go by anyway, and hopefully I'll be here 15 years from now and. Yeah. That, land will be there you no know, barring you know some sort of crazy hurricane or you know an earthquake right. you know there was california's going to break off into the ocean or whatever but you know what i mean barring that you don't have a disaster that actually destroys the land that you own then you have you know an opportunity so that's the other thing is that all of the all the get rich do this quick this is going to happen i made ten thousand dollars in a month from zero to the you're not even Considering you have a learning curve, like don't fall for that. Yeah. Don't do not fall for that. The money is money and time. This is a seed time and harvest planet. You plant the seed, you water the seed. It takes a time before you get yeah. what you want. I agree. One of my early mentors told me there's a time to learn and a time to learn, right? And you can't, you can shorten the time delta between the two, but you can't ignore learning and go jump directly into learning. It just never works that way. Right. Oh, and a lot of people are hearing the get rich things. Oh, you can do this and you can make $10,000 a month. You have not calculated in what your learning curve is. Right. I have all day. I can study something all day, but many people are at work and then they have children and then they have adults and then they have, you know, the spiritual work and then they have to work out. Where are you going to have time to learn all that so you can get to that $10,000 and how long will it take you? That's true. That's three really months. True. I'm not making any money. This is crap. It's not crap. They didn't put that part in it, the learning part. Yeah. So let's put, let's take the step forward for you in your journey, Doctor. Right. So now you are 
you have your practice, right? You've met some people who told you about advice. How did you come to crowdfunding? Like, what's the logical step for a doctor? It's such a yeah. logical step in my head. I'm going to start a practice and then I'm going to go do crowdfunding. So help me, help me so, bridge that gap. Where do you, how did you go so from there to there? Yes. So by that time, I had started my own show and I had started getting sponsorships for the show. The show was making money. So we're talking about, you know, But say show, Dr. Wright, because people may not know this part of your life. Uh, what does that mean? I have a show called The Right Place and where I interviewed lovely people like you <laughs> that I've been doing since the year 2000. And the reason why I did it is because I didn't know enough about business to make my practice do really, really well. And so I started interviewing. I got Mark Victor Hansen. I got all these experts to come on my show and I got to ask them questions yeah. because I couldn't get the answers from who I needed to get the answers from. And this show was for other entrepreneurs if you needed answers, because this is before Shark Tank and before SBTV and all of that. I was yeah. on cable doing these great interviews and getting the information for the average entrepreneur. So one of the things that I saw was a guy who was doing crowdfunding and I watched his whole campaign and it clicked for me. This is what entrepreneurs could really use. And we're talking, you know, 2008 recession, 2009, 2010. Money short can't get money from banks. Entrepreneurs short can't get money from banks. And I understood that crowdfunding would be a way to get funding. And so I took 10 of my friends that had businesses and I said, I'm going to do this thing called crowdfunding. I'm going to be upfront with you. I just learned it. I'm not that good of it. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but you're my friend. And you know, I'm not going to rip you off, right? I'm your fr We're friends. Can I crowdfund $10,000 for you? And they would say, Yes. Yes. Okay. Oh. So I did these 10 crowdfunding tests. Six were great. Four were burned down so bad you could still see the smoke. And they, were just, they just came out bad. And so, but I learned a lot because at the time that I started crowdfunding, there were two books on Amazon about crowd. So there was nobody to learn from. And so as I began to learn, you know, I actually began to do it successfully. And sometimes I would go to different classes and some of the teachers would be talking about, yeah, crowdfunding is this and this and, you know, and they check you out before you go on the websites. And, they, and I was like, oh, you've never crowdfunded because you're not telling the truth. This is not how it goes. If you're actually crowdfunding, like if you read about it versus if you're doing it as an expert, you know, that's how they were cool. talking. You know, so interesting. And so I called the Los Angeles Small Business Administration and I said, well, who's teaching crowdfunding? And they said, what's crowdfunding? And I said, I'm teaching crowdfunding. When do you want me to come in? And literally, that's how I got my crowdfunding class at the Small Business mm. Administration. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At that time, were you still practicing and doing a show and doing crowdfunding? Or at that time, you... No. By the time I had started my show, I had closed down my practice because I was struggling. I had nobody to mentor me. I had nobody to show me the ropes. And I just couldn't figure out enough of the finances to keep my practice really going. And I told my family, because I've said I wanted to be a doctor since I was three, and I literally grew up to be exactly what I said I was going to be, right? So I sat my family down. I go, look, I'm going to close the practice. It's been struggling for a while. I'm losing the joy of, that I ever wanted to be a physician. And I want to move forward with my TV show. My family, who was very, very supportive, and I, the, the, I, mean, I had the greater, my parents were the, like, I had the greater, larger portion of my family when I made this announcement. They were very quiet. Not their usual, you can do it, you know, <laughs> none of that. They were just real quiet. So I don't know if they thought I was having a nervous breakdown or I don't, know, I don't know what they thought. I never asked anybody what they thought, but they were like, hmm, okay, hmm. And so I wow. would, yeah, because my, my family is very supportive. I have uh, one of my cousins is a judge in Los Angeles, and the elders in our family will go down to her courthouse and sit in the court and watch her gavel because they, they can think there's some. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I love that. Like, Supporting her, you know, she needs support. Where's the pointing her? And then, you know, on the break, she gives a little tours of her office. Right. But it's so funny. It's like, we're all going down to see her. Do you want to come? It's like, no, we, we no. get together. I'm so don't get together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I hang time with that particular cousin. But she's really great at what she does. So, so that, that's amazing, Dr. Wright. So let me ask you this question. Did the thought of going to work for somebody instead of having your own practice as a doctor come to you? Or that was not even a thought that you wanted to entertain? It's not really a thought I wanted to entertain. I, when I first came out of school, when I first came and graduated, I did work for another doctor, and it was a terrible experience. And so I didn't have quite what I, I mean, looking back, I didn't know this, but at looking back, I didn't have quite what I needed in terms of all of the cash to open my own practice. But I just went ahead and did it because I had to get out of that office. It yeah. was, he and his wife were getting a divorce, and his wife had an office attached to his office. And it was just toxic. It was just, I came home crying on my birthday one day. I was like, I got to get out of here. So that's what. So, so then what was going through your head? Because here, and, and I'm, just, I'm sorry if I'm putting you back in a, in a time that you don't want to relive. But it'd be interesting for us to see that when you were, you sat at a practice, it didn't go that well, right? Not according to at least how you were thinking, but did you go? Now, what gave you the confidence the studio is going to do better? The show is going to do better? What were what was going through your head at that time? Because you know, if I were in that situation, the first thing was like, uh, maybe it won't work. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's not the business. Maybe I need to learn the skills. What whatever. You, there's a lot of internal dialogue that may happen. So what was going through you through your head at that time? I just did a little bit of testing and just told my friends I had businesses that I was starting a show, and they needed to give me two hundred fifty dollars for a commercial, and nobody said no. And so unlike my practice, where I had to pull through some lawyers to get my money and get my check, insurance companies were paying, you know, four or five months down the line. People were writing me checks. And then Southern California Edison gave me a check for $1,000. And I was like, oh, it's a business. It's a business, right. And your revenue from the studio was predominantly ad revenue? Yeah, at the time it was ad revenue. And because you got to think back, this is before YouTube. So right. think, you can imagine before YouTube, people had very limited opportunities to get on TV. And so I would charge to be a guest. I would charge for you to have an ad. Like, you know, if you walked in the door, I charge, you know, I just, I charge yeah. for everything. And so people would come through because they knew they didn't have access to TV otherwise. And it would give them a legitimacy. And so I started this show, The Right Place. I just started interviewing big names and then the average person who wanted to do some marketing I let them on the show and that was able to sustain it. And then Southern California Edison, which is our electric company here, supported me as a community show and getting out community news. And it was just really, really good. So I was very, very fortunate. Love that. So now, now let's talk about crowdfunding. I know we set the stage at the onset of the show. We're going to talk about that. So let's let's actually talk about that. What is crowdfunding? I know we talked about a little bit about it. Give us your definition of what crowdfunding is. My, my definition of crowdfunding for business is raising money through smaller investments from a larger group of people. And you have two ways that you can do it. But what it is, is grandma can give you $10 and uh, some big time investor could give you $10,000. Sure. You can have different amounts given to you. And there is the pre-sale type of crowdfunding, which like I talked about crowdfunding, a book would come under, or you have a gadget or you have whatever. I'm going to sell this eraser. I'm going to make these erasers. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell a thousand of them through crowdfunding first before I ever make one. Yeah. Perfect. So what you're basically saying is that before you be on your time, before you risk anything on your, on your business, uh, yes, you're definitely risking your time because you have to invest time with that at least. Before you start building a first widget, before you start writing your first word of your book or whatever that you're trying to sell, you are now trying to test the market. And if actually no one's giving you even dollar, that means that you may have to really rethink either your target audience is incorrect. That doesn't mean your product's crappy yet. That essentially means the way you're marketing and to who you're marketing is not necessarily the right fit. Is, is that how you look at it? That is how I look at it. I think it's feedback either way, whether you're selling the product and it's going great and you're raising money or you're not selling, that's really great feedback. So you, want, you do want to look at your market 
you want to look at your packaging. If you're saying, if I'm saying this is a luxury eraser and it's just in a Ziploc bag, as opposed, here's a luxury eraser that came in this beautiful box like it was a Tiffany ring, different thing. Part of it is, you know, what's going on with your packaging? What's going on with your company? Does it look fly by night or does it look like, you know, you're going to be around for a hot second? And so there are a lot of little things that you can look at, but if it's not selling, it doesn't mean the product is bad. It just, you can look at all kinds of things. And then of course, making sure that your product is going to be a good product as much as you can, right? uh, because they don't actually have the product in their hand. Only until people have the product can they can you give real feedback that your product is crappy. There's some other things yeah. that can be crappy. And so when people get the product and they use it and go, Dr. Wright, this did not clean my tub the way you said it was going to clean my tub. Now then we have a product is crappy issue. Correct. So let's talk. So I, I do have, a, I don't know if you talked about it or not. I do have my own venture capital fund. Mm-hmm. There is capital for medical startups. That's really what we are focusing on. Okay. When I start looking at, you're looking for a different companies looking to raise who is yes. going to a crowdfunding versus going to a venture capital. There's two different okay. ways to look at it. So when I'm... Um, you raise money with crowdfunding with VCs if you're doing what we call regulation crowdfunding or crowdfunding right. A or crowdfunding D. You got to do Reg A or something, correct? Yes. Completely. So much more sophisticated and you have to know what you're doing. And a lot of the clients that I work with they have no idea what venture capitalists are actually looking for. They don't understand right. that. And you have a bag full of money and you can write a check, but they don't understand what comes with that. And so I do a lot of educating with people like, you know, they're, they're not a fairy giving you money so you can go do whatever you have to do. They have expectations for this money and you have to be ready for that ex- for those expectations. There are some people who, Quite frankly, they plan on passing their company down to someone else. I plan on selling Right Place Studios. I have no one in my family who's interested in in media. Right. Not a thing. Not in my family. Now this we have other things that we can pass down, but this is probably it's just this is like it's just my thing. So they haven't fun of But you know, I try to tell people who I'm going to pass this down to my kids. If that's your plan, then you don't want to mess with VCs because they have a different expectation. Correct. And so people do not understand that. And then they say, well, I want an angel investor. And they don't understand what an angel investor is. They think an angel investor is somebody from a Hallmark movie who writes them a blank check and then walks away and never talks to them again. Right. I have to really constantly bring people down to the reality of what we're talking about with this money. I feel like the pre-sale crowdfunding that you can do on Kickstarter and Indiegogo, I feel like that brings a lot of people into line with their products as a first crowdfunding. And then as they get bigger and they're, they are more sophisticated, then they're ready. But I rarely come across someone who's just like, hey, I made this thing and now, you know, we see, you know, right. they're just ready for that conversation. And they can't even answer questions like, you know, wh- what kind of money are you looking for? What are you looking for? Whatever you can give me. I said, that is not how you negotiate. <laughs> I'll be any VCs. Yeah, no VC is going to give them any money. Hey, I'm here to take whatever money you think you have. And I just tell me what you have and I'll, I'll tell you a story around it. It doesn't work that way. So, Dr. Wright, what is in it for, let's say if you were to launch a Kickstarter campaign today. Right. If I if you're selling that eraser as a whiteboard eraser as a widget, and you tell me that hey, you know what, socket, this is a great product, blah blah blah. No, you're not telling the socket, but you're telling the campaign on the Kickstarter. I read it. Why am I even interested in it? Why don't I just wait for the eraser to be launched and then see look at the feedback and then see what happens? Well, there's the incentive of what investor in crowdsourcing crowdfunding has. Why are they investing? Well, they're investing to get a return on their money. So they're investing so that this company can grow and make lots of money. So if they are investors, they want return on their money. Okay. If you do it as a pre-sale, those people are usually just really early adopters who love getting the, the thing that came out, the new thing. They love having had it first. And so you have different motivations for different people. 
But I always tell people, when you're dealing with investors, investors want a return on their money. And you need to know what that what their particular expectation is and that you can give it to them because that's what it is for them. Now, they tend to work with things that they know. If they know medical equipment and medical things, or they like that, if they like electronics, if they like, you know what I mean? They're, they're going to go towards what they like. But many of the people that are starting these companies, they do not understand that you need to have a return on your investment. They think it's, like I said, they've been watching too many movies and they think it's some sort of gift for them to need to do with their. Right, right, right. No, I I completely agree. So help me understand one thing. So if I'm investing in that widget that you just showed me, Eraser, am I getting a percentage of the company or am I just getting the widget a discount? What am I getting? If you're an investor, you're going to get a percentage of the company. So as the company grows and has dividends and all of that stuff, you're able to cash in on that. Usually they have a, you have to wait a year or two clause before you can sell your stock. But the stock goes up, you can sell the stock and you can get out of it that way. So you're truly an investor with some, you know, you've got your hand in there, you've got your say in there. At different levels, you might be on the board, you know, those who are coming in with larger levels might be able to be on the board if you you know if you're just buying a 250 hundred dollars for one share you're probably not going to get on the board so it is definitely an investment it is regulated by the sec so you're not out there in the wild wild west you have you know people looking over it for the most part not to say the fraud can't still happen but it is registered and, and the players are registered and you know who's who so let's let's talk about that because you use the f word fraud in this case, what are they? What what are people getting cheated on? Because if if somebody's raising capital, are we saying that that widget that was promised to me was not even true widget, and they would they never had the intention of developing it, and they'll take the money and run away? Now we're thinking about fraud. What's the fraud? There's about, yeah, there's about ten percent fraud across the whole board of the over four hundred billion dollar crowdfunding that's happening. So that's a Wait, real thing. Four hundred billion dollar with a B. With wow. that's running money. Yes, people are doing it all the time. It just people don't realize it. And so the fraud can be that the person was totally, completely, completely making it up. Is a story from Kickstarter where they were about to fund somebody a million dollars on some Kobe beef stuff, and after people were making Kickstarter aware that. This was fraud. This was not true. This company was that. They held up the money before they gave it to the people and they were able to cancel it. Some of it is, I'm going to say accidental frogs. Accidental frogs. <laughs> accidental fraud. Because you have someone who's a little bit newer in business and they may have something that's extra successful. So while they have already negotiated with some overseas company to make, you know, 10,000 of these, but they sold 50,000. Right. Now they've scrambled to get the rest of those made. And they may be inexperienced as to how to negotiate. They may, you know, things happen when you're trying to get things made and shipped. And so they may be inexperienced and kind of mess up. So the first 10,000 people get theirs, but the rest of the people are like, right. what's going on? So some of that is not all intentional. Some of it is this person was inexperienced and this grew much larger. And then you have the people that are like, you don't, the coolest cooler. This cooler had big wheels. It had chargers on it. It had a blender on it. It had a section of the section out the ice. And this blender had speakers. This blender had a corkscrew. This blender was, you know, you could do everything and change a tire too. So it was awesome. And it sold really, really well, but then they couldn't get them made fast enough. And it was for you know sale on Kickstarter. Some people got there, some people did not. It was for sale on Kickstarter, but then it started being for sale on Amazon. So the people on Kickstarter wow. are like, wait a second, I didn't even get mine yet. How are you doing that over there? So it got they need, they need more capital. Yeah, it was, you know, all oh, this is fraud, this is this and that. But he had a lot of people that had gotten their coolers and were like, I love it, it's fine. But then you had all these other people that didn't, but the fact that they wouldn't. So it was quite complicated. And so that was, to me, some fraud going on and, you know, some people coming up with some different ideas. So when it comes to business, that's why I like doing business crowdfunding. And I don't, I'm not a fond of personal crowdfunding. 
You can't check on somebody's medical records. You can't check on somebody's personal stuff to see if they are really using the money the way they say they're using the money unless you actually know them. So I had one person that I had two instances, direct instances. One person connected with me on GoFundMe and oh my wife and she's sick and this and here's her x-rays and they put up x-rays. I'm a physician. I can read x-rays. The x-ray that he had up it was not someone who had cancer. It was just a healthy person wow. with a So I said, you know, I'm not saying you're lying, but this can't be your wife who's almost dying of cancer's x-ray because of that. The other thing is that there was a young man in LA who did an experiment and he was videotaping and he gave a homeless guy a hundred dollars. And he said, I'm going to just videotape you for the next couple of days and just, you know, whatever you do. So we're, uh, you know, we're always taught don't give the homeless or the unhoused money because they're just going to go get some drugs and you're just going to smoke it up and you're just going to drink it up and, you know, you're not helping them. Yeah. That's what we're told. He, I don't, I, I'm not sure that he told the man that he was going to videotape him. I think he just was doing it and, you know, just in the area. But people had seen him in the area, so maybe people weren't paying right. that much. He videotaped on videotape. So this is not him telling a story. This is, he has the video of him going into the store and changing it out to tents. He took one guy in to get some medicine, paid for one guy's medicine, he bought some food for a couple of people that wow. went. He did something for everybody that was in that little area and, you know, bought some water for some people, bought some, Beautiful. you know, just different things. It, none of it was drugs. None of it was a, this this guy that he got the medicine for. It was his prescription that he didn't have a $10 copay for. And so he spent all the money on the people around him. And the guy has it on video. And he was so touched by that, that he did a crowdfunding and he was able to raise something like $150,000 for this guy. Get this wow. guy. He was one of those people that wasn't. Real strung out and addicted, so I was able to get back on his feet, you know, get cleaned up, get a job, yeah. get a live, and that all worked out. Now, that's a beautiful story. And I work with the in-house, so I, you know, I love to hear that. But the other side of the story is there's a couple who made up a story that the wife's car had a flat. And she's in the middle of the night. And the only person that would help me was this homeless guy. And so, you know, we just want to help him. We just want to raise money for him. So this this couple parades around this homeless guy. They raise four hundred thousand dollars. They take pictures of him and all this kind of stuff, and somebody spots him and he's still on the street. So they're like, "Hey, don't you know there's a GoFundMe? Where's your money? Why are you on the street? You couldn't have possibly smoked and drank up four hundred thousand. You know, it just happened." He's like, "What are you talking about? The man didn't even know about it." So they had raised money using his face, using his name, and this couple had wow. taken the money. And so they finally wound up, they gave him like $80,000 or something because public pressure. Because GoFundMe had already given them the cash, and so you know, GoFundMe was kind of like, we're out of it. And the public pressure and everything was, you know, this is such a fraud. And the guy literally on social media live said, We'll burn this money up before we give it to you and started setting dollars on fire. Wow. So fast forward, they're both doing jail time. I'll just put I'll just say that. Oh. Fast forward, they're both doing jail time. Yeah, that's just that's just insane. But I think I think, but to your point, how do you validate? How do you test it? Yeah, I don't that's why I kind of don't mess with personal yeah. To me, a business is easier to validate. I can check and see if you have a license. I can check and see if what you're talking about is being filed. I don't have to hand over money and not know anything about anything. I can take the paperwork that you gave me, but I can also do my own research and figure out. You can look up Play Studios and see, oh, it's a company in California. The state of California has record of us. So you're not dealing with the unknown. So that's why I personally, unless I know them personally, I I don't do personal crowdfunding because I, I feel that I cannot verify it. And you and it's against the law to say, well, let me see your health records. So, so Dr. Red, help, help me understand that. So um, 
because you're consulting a lot of businesses and trying to help them crowdfund their finance, their, their needs as well, right? So how do you help, let's, and let's say I'm an investor in that, a potential investor, how do you get me comfortable that this is a legitimate business? Because chances are, if, the, if somebody is in that stage that is raising ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000, the product doesn't exist, there is no real bank statement because the revenue is not coming in, right? So what, what's the basis of that it's not a fraudulent business? Because best- any, anything like when we check our business, when we're checking the businesses, we're checking all the registration, the license, and all that stuff, but we at least have something to look in the bank statements. We have something behind it. A lot of these people have credibilities. They've started businesses before. They've sold it. They're known people in the market. In, in, our, in the circles that we're roaming around. When you're raising funds for the, when, when this sort of a lack of better words, no-name people are trying to raise funds on these platforms, there are a lot of red flags that could come, right? There's no bank account. There's no operations history. There's this, if you start going the traditional due diligence route, the chances are every business on crowd crowdfunding platform is going to not pass that test. So help me understand that when you're doing, when somebody's doing crowd crowdfunding uh, on a platform, how should they portray themselves so they can preempt some of these questions of, I am actually legitimate. How does that work? I think that they need to really delve into who they are and be very transparent about their background and their experience. When I've dealt with investors, they're betting on the jockey, not the horse. They want to know that this is a person who runs the company. And so where is the evidence or the experience that you've run across? Oh, you came from Google? Oh, you came from, you see what I'm saying? You came from so-and-so? Oh, okay. You know, it makes sense that you would have the knowledge in this area. So for a lot of people, even though they say, hey, you can just crowdfund an idea. Well, you need a little bit more than an idea. This better be an idea in which you have experience. Could I crowdfund for a film or television? Yes, I've done four films. I've done been doing TV since 2025. That's my area of expertise. Could I crowdfund, you know, something electronic? Probably not because that's not my area of expertise. So I really work on making sure the person can run the company to a certain yeah. extent. Many times when your company gets really big, you need to bring somebody else who's more experienced than you in on that, but they're not there yet. And so if they can get them to a certain place and then you can bring in someone else that is the bigger things to run the company, then it works fine. So I just work on really making sure that they're clear about what their expertise is, what they know and what they don't know. And then, you know, it it is up to each investor. Do they want to take a chance? Many investors spread their investment out. So they're not going to use $150,000 in one spot. They'd rather do $10,000 $10,000 in 15 spots. And so I work with those kind of people, bring board those kind of people that, you know, are willing to take a chance. If it looks like the jockey can ride this horse, the, the disconnect comes when we have these people that are in fantasy land that want the BCRs and all these people to invest in them. And they have never done this before. They've never had any experience with this before. They've, ne- you know, it's just a completely new area for them. Nothing wrong with a pivot. We all don't know anything when we first start, whatever we're starting. Sure. That can be very, very difficult because you at least have to bring your skills and your talents to this. And many times, if you have the person who has the skills but kind of needs the cash to kind of get everything going, that's an easier bet than someone who's just like, I think it's a good idea. No, I don't know how to run this kind of company, but it's a great idea. You need to partner with somebody who does know how to run it so you two can come together as a force yeah. and then get your funding. And it's it's so right, right? I think what you said, it makes sense to me from a VC perspective as well. And we also not just, we're not just investing in startups. We also have, a, we're buying apartment buildings. We're buying, we're partnering with other teams. We're looking at Airbnbs, but we have different funds to do different things. And it's seldom we're saying that the product is great. Product is important. The idea is important. All of that is important. But the first level of filter is, who is the team? Right? Do they have the credibility or the capability? They may not have the credibility, but do they have the capability to execute upon what they are envisioning? And more importantly, because seldom 
because the idea was that that was on the paper is going to manifest itself. It's going to take many twists and turns, and what comes out on the other end may look completely different than what the idea was pitched. It has happened. It'll continue to happen. You can come because you never know. Good sign in that, wow, this is way better than what we were trying to do in the first place. And it has happened when it's like, oh, this is underwhelming. Correct. You never you gotta, know. You gotta have somebody who can sit and, and, and sit with each of those scenarios and be like, okay, you know, the, where do we go from here and, and keep good relationships. Yeah. And I just feel, like I said, I spend a lot of time pulling people out of fantasy land and making them understand crowdfunding is a financial instrument. This is a tool. You are in the world of finance and this is not a game. This is real money. And this is it, money has to go to work. We don't believe our money in the bank is on vacation. We're trying to pull it out the bank and put it somewhere where it's going to work. <laughs> I love that. And as much as I love vacation, I don't like my money on vacation. Yeah, not money. Uh, definitely not. Money cannot take a vacation. Dr. Wright, this is amazing. Now tell me what is, if you're okay sharing that, the craziest idea that you have, idea you have crowdfunded that you thought that was crazy and it turned out to be a huge success. Turned out to be a huge success. I could tell you the ones that people have pitched to me that were just like, that's a no. What's the craziest thing that turned out to be a huge success? That you had to, you had to believe in your gut, but the logic was telling you not to go forward with. Okay, so I supported this because I really liked this young woman. And I, I, I didn't think that, I thought that she could do it, but I didn't think she could do it this way. She started a coin. He uh, said coin as in like a digital coin, like a crypto? Uh, big Bitcoin, like she started a coin. Got it. And she based it on, remember when they found this, I don't know if you remember, but I, I love science and I love NASA. But they found a, plot, a planet that was basically... Diamonds. It was a carbon. Yeah, and so oh yeah. Okay, remember that planet? Okay, so that's what her coin is based on. And so she started a coin. She named it after that. And then I was like, that's just such a weird story. But I guess you know all of the coins have a weird story. So I just thought she was just like that is so weird. And um, I'm just gonna say I I did invest in it anyway because I liked her. That coin did very well. It's Mm. doing. Very well. I think that's what the interesting thing about it is, right? That when you're investing in it, part of that is you just don't know. You don't know. Right? I'm glad about that one. I mean, she was like, I was just like, that is so weird, but I just like her so much. I mean, she was just like, she was so clear. She was clear about what she was doing. I was just like, yeah, why is it based on a planet? Like, what? Yeah, what's the story? There's no story there, right? Yeah. <laughs> I can't even remember where it is because sometimes, you know, my media brain kicks in when you start telling me a story and it's like is this a good movie no this isn't a good movie okay <laughs> right 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 no and which is an important point right so let's think about that for a second because you help entrepreneurs sell their stories that's exactly what you're doing as a crowdfunder uh, advisor so how do you sell a story can you give me the science behind selling a story yes yeah, selling a crowdfunding story has to be uh, for for your business, okay? This is not for your, my dog got run over by a truck and I need to raise money yeah. for his new peg leg. This is, and I'm not saying that being mean, I did have a three-legged dog at one point in my life. People used to ask me what happened. She got hit by a car, but when people asked me what happened, I would tell them shark bite. But anyway, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the story for crowdfunding in business is, Number one, the problem that you're solving, you've got to tell that story. You've got to tell the, so it has to be this great combination of the problem that you are solving. Here's the story of the problem. Here's how we solve it. Here's the widget. And the story of how you came to get to this widget without going back to, well, when I was born, I had picked, like, you got to make it interesting. It has to be a real interesting story. And you have to mix those two things. And when you're doing pre-sales, you're mixing those two things and you're selling them on the purchase right now, right? Before we're into here, before we're into there. I have a man that I interviewed once and he had made this new kitty car seat. And his point was to crowdfund and pre-sell them because what he wanted to do is he wanted to get into Costco and Kids Are Us when that was open and, you know, Target. And so he sold, just online with his crowdfunding campaign, 
he sold two and a half million dollars worth of these things. So when he went to them, they had no problem picking him up. Of course. But his whole point was just to be able to get into, you know, bigger, yeah. bigger. So you got to tell that whole story. If you are talking about working with investors who are buying shares of the company, putting money in, your story has to involve your experience and your ability to drive this com company to a certain point. And I think most people are not getting the funding because there are things that tick off the investors that this guy or this girl can't do it. You know, I've seen kids come in. They're just not, you know, they're, I'm going to say kids because if you're under 25, you're kind of a kid. Come in. They're dressed nice and clean and humbly, but they're watch. They're wearing, I don't know if they're wearing their watch or grandpa's watch, but their watch is worth 10K on yeah. a bad. And they're saying, we need investments. And it's like, you know, go home and put on your Mickey Mouse watch. A watch is a watch. I believe in wearing watches to meetings, but put on your little, you know, $10 Mickey yeah. Mouse watch. And bring out the Rolex and tell people you need them to invest. You know, like. Right. And, and so there are different things that that, let, that investor said, yeah, I couldn't go with that kid because if he's spending $10,000 on a Rolex watch, like he clearly doesn't have his priorities straight. He's not going to have his priorities straight for the business. So these are people who are home. They're in business. They're used to being with people and know how to handle it. And if you're not, I mean, they could tell new from what's not going to work. And that's, I think, the biggest thing. And so you've got to weave that into your story. And you've got to be able to explain not only why this solution will be great and be profitable, okay? You got to show that it'll be profitable, but also why you can take it to a certain point of profit, profitability. And if you haven't handled a, you know, $80 million company before, you know, you need to know that you, before it gets to $80 million under your watch, you're probably going to need to hire somebody else who can take it to the next level. And so many people are unwilling to let somebody come in or, you know, they're just, they don't want to let go so that it can grow. And that's, a I agree. And I, I think it's kind of like, it's really interesting because the, there are a lot of parables in the world of, because we raise capital for other investments as well. It's the same world, right? Where there has to be a story and the story doesn't have to be told because you're, you're trusting the facts. The facts has to align with the story, but the story, it's really, Connecting the dot for somebody on the receiving end. It's really asking your spouse to go to a restaurant, right? If you have a strong preference of that, you can't, you can say it because I want it. That's great. It's one way of saying it. The other way of saying it, maybe it's a restaurant where you guys had your first date. They bring that in, right? So that you're able to touch the, what do they say? I have a very great mentor who always says that touch the heart because the heart will make the order to the brain, right? That's what you're trying to do with your problems. When you're trying to come up with, this is the problem that you're trying to solve. The problem is to connect with them, right? Mm -hmm. Unless they have some money lying around and they say that, hey, I'm, I want to play. It seemed like the idea for you to invest in the coin was something you just wanted to play. I just wanted to play. Yeah, even if it didn't work out, even if you believe in the idea, you're like, that's fine. I, worst case, I may lose this much, but the, let me bet on this child. Let me bet on this kid. Right? <laughs> a high key like you don't hear about it on the news every five minutes and that thing is just like it's doing well i mean i don't, I don't know exactly what she's doing but that's good hey you know what the, the, these stories are there these stories are definitely there well dr white you and i can talk it seems like we've almost talked for like an hour and a half already and i think we can <laughs> still continue talking and so i think what i want to do is i want to bring it to a logical conclusion on this episode i can see you coming back pretty soon and we're going to take another topic and go more detailed into some, some of this communication, these stories, because I believe that part of you creating your wealth has to be able to tell stories, right? That's really where your strength is with the studio and everything else that you got going on with what you're doing right now. It's really tell a cohesive story that resonates. So love that part. So we're going to shift the gears here, Dr. Wright, towards the end of that show that we're coming in. We usually ask two questions from all our listeners. I'm going to change the first question. I'm going to test it out on you. I've been thinking about this question is then, what did you believe when you were 20 that if your 20-year-old self will tell you what you really believe, what you really valued, 
and your current self will listen to you, you'll laugh your ass off. What is something that is, can you tell us something there? Yes. 20-year-old me was like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Baby, I need a nap. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I believe. You know, there's a crazy story that I have. It's similar. A friend of mine was a hypnotherapist. I actually went to him like, can you just turn me off so I don't sleep at all? He's like, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm like, just, just make me believe. Whatever you do, do your magic. I don't need to understand it. Just hypnotize me and tell me I don't need to sleep. Can you please do that to me? He's like, no, I can't. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, I'm so glad you went to someone who had integrity. You would be with us today. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. It always kills me. And now my wife's taking a course right now. She's like, I need to sleep. I'm like, yeah, you're right. We're not 20s anymore where we could literally have three, four nights without sleep and maybe partying and drinking. Now you're like, okay, let's slow down. What age is fine. Life's finally catching up. Yes. Now, now tell me one thing, and you may have thought about this or not. It's more from an abstract perspective. Where do you believe as a whole humanity should migrate towards in the next few decades? Well, I think humanity has to have this balance between what we're doing with our wealth and making sure the rest of the world is not starving. And I, I'm not even going to go outside of the United States. I mean, you know, I live in California. You know, LA has people sleeping on the streets, three-tenths wide. And we have some of the richest people in the world here in California. Yeah. And so I am not saying you can't be rich and it's bad to be rich. I'm not saying that. But I would love to see all of us just looking at humanity a little bit different and having compassion, finding some way to get people off the street. We got teachers sleeping in their car because their monthly salary doesn't make enough for them to live in the city that they live in. And so I, I think that we have to, I don't know quite how to figure it out. So I'm not like eat the rich and everything, but you know, we have to figure out something to get this disparity. You know, I, I want right. people to be rich as they can be, but what can we do about these people that are not eating, kids that are not eating, kids that can't eat because nobody paid their school bill and there's no food, no, you know. Right. Correct. What can we do for people that are actually really in need? Can we do better? And so humanity is going to have to figure that out. And it's great. We're going to the moon and we're going to Mars and we're doing whatever it is we're doing. But, you know, that literally we have the ability to solve homelessness financially, solve homelessness, solve the hungry in the United States. And we don't. Yeah. Yeah. There's a guy who did a study that said if each church in America just adopted one foster child in one day, every foster child in the system would be out of the system. Wow. I did not know that. And he's did all kinds of church, big, small, whatever, not telling the ones that are big to take 10 and the ones that are small to just take one, just one per church. And so we have, it's like, how do we solve this? We have the ability to solve it. Don't. And so that's where I feel like humanity has got to make that change to whether we as human beings are no longer willing to step over someone who's laying in his own urine to get into our church or our movie theater. Well, Dr. Roy, why don't we help as a human, as a society, when we know of a solution? Is there, what's preventing us? Have you thought about that? I, you know, I think about it actually all the time, especially in terms of the unhoused. Why isn't this? something people want to solve. And I think it's just, I think a lot of people who are, you know, super mega wealthy may feel like, well, hey, it, it shouldn't fall all on me. You know, it should be me and some other people. And that's, that's fine. I, I, just, I think it's just not organized in a way yeah. that everybody is comfortable. And some people really think that people out on the street, sleeping on the streets, 
Oh, they're just lazy. It's a, this is America. All you gotta do is put yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm-hmm. Most of the, you know, didn't, you know, even though my practice failed, I wasn't out on the street. <laughs> I was Correct. Correct. living pretty Correct. personally. So it's not all about bootstraps. It's not all about that. And then we have people that are just straight not able. We have veterans who are yeah. suffering from from other. There's no way any of our American veterans should be on the street. Oh, no, it's because of them that we're enjoying the freedom. They sacrifice their life, their loved ones, their their mental sanity. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine when we're talking about freedom is easy. Fighting for freedom is very hard. Different, very different. different. Very different. So I'm not sure why. I mean, I think that's a really, really great question. You know, I, I, I hope I figured that out. I would love to solve homelessness in my lifetime. No, I'm pretty sure we're all doing our uh, best we can, but we can do better, to your point, right? So, so on that deep note, Dr. Wright, I want to thank you for an insightful conversation. We learned a lot about you. We learned about your journey. But more importantly, your drive to add value to people, your drive to help people, even the the profession you chose before you went into different businesses was to help people, right? And now you're helping people in a different way, but you're still, your, your deep root cause to help people has not gone. So we love that. We appreciate that. I have learned a lot. I really enjoyed this conversation. Didn't seem like I've not known you for a long. It seemed like I've, I've been free with you for a long time. <laughs> it seemed like we've known each other for a long time. Yeah, it long. seemed like we've known each other for a long time. Well, thank you again, Dr. Wright, and thank you for the listeners. If you are Especially if you're listening to this part of the conversation, that means you have stayed with us through almost an hour. I really hope you got some value out of it, some actionable insights out of it. And if nothing else, just had two people uh, just laugh into the entire show. So hopefully it was entertaining. I will thank you again for tuning in. I will see you in the next episode. And Dr. Wright, I can't wait to have more conversations with you and maybe hopefully get a chance to bring you back. Thank you so much. I would love to come back. Great. Thank you. My great to listeners, if you own and manage real estate, maybe you're ready for a lifestyle change. By selling your real estate, of course, you may have to pay substantial capital gain taxes. One option that may help you solve this is to learn about doing a 1031 tax deferred real estate exchange because you may be able to defer all of the capital gain taxes and you could even exchange into a replacement property that may allow you to get rid of all of the headaches that are involved with being an active landlord. My friend Ray Druitt is a managing director with Bangerter Financial Services, and his goal is to help you understand all of the rules associated with 1031 exchanges. To learn more, you may call him directly at 801-312-9482. Once again, it's 801-312-9482, or you may visit his website at 1031.bangerterfinancial.com slash 1031guy. Please be sure to see disclosures in the show notes. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.